Have you ever heard of a psychological condition called imposter syndrome? A couple of clinical psychologists coined the term in 1978. And apparently 70% of all successful people, particularly business leaders and first-time CEOs, have this syndrome. They've experienced it. Despite all the external evidence of their competence, those exhibiting the syndrome remain convinced that they're frauds and they do not deserve the success they've achieved. Proof of their success is dismissed as luck, timing, or a result of deceiving others into thinking that they're more intelligent or more competent than they really are. It's stated that there's some good things about experiencing imposter syndrome. Most notably, perhaps, is that having it is the surest sign that you're not an imposter, since fake leaders are less likely to experience the doubts and insecurities that accompany this syndrome. Now, it's one thing to be a genuine leader and feel at times like you're an imposter, but to actually be an imposter? That's quite a different story. Internationally known speaker and author Rex Gatto defines a fake leader as someone who focuses on money, pleasure, and self-glorification, not on the organization's ultimate good for other people. Fake leaders talk a good game, but they produce very little. They can speak in sound bites that motivate the audience to await outcomes that never occur. They love to exaggerate their own personal successes, telling followers how good they are, how they've created success, and how single-handedly they've accomplished so much. They take the successes and accomplishments of others and exploit their fake success. Fake leadership is nothing new. In fact, it was a crisis over 2,000 years ago in the Corinthian church. And these descriptions of fake leadership fit the imposters who some had come to embrace and believe were genuine leaders in the Corinthian church. Paul helped to start the Corinthian church, but after he left, leaders came in who were impressive and flashy. They looked really, really, really good, but they were frauds. They were false teachers who turned people away from Paul and his message. In fact, they convinced people that Paul was the imposter and they were the genuine apostles. In between the letters of 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Paul wrote a letter that we do not have. And it's called the severe or the painful or tearful letter. And in it, Paul confronted those responsible for leading the flock away from him in his message, as well as confronting the rest of the church who were following these guys. And in chapter 7 of this letter, 2 Corinthians, we see reason to believe that the church responded well. It appeared as if the majority of the church came to see the leaders who'd come into them to indeed be imposters. And we, it appears that there was within this church a genuine sorrow that led to repentance. But some, some in the church were still rejecting Paul's leadership. 
And so throughout the letter of 2 Corinthians, Paul is put in the awkward position of having to defend himself and make the case why he is indeed the real deal and why the guys who they had come to follow were fake, why they were the imposters. And Paul isn't defending himself in this letter because he's not doing it so he can, because he's been personally offended and he just really, really cares about his reputation so much he wants to straighten everything out. Not at all. He realizes that their rejection of him was a rejection of his message. And that is what mattered. See, the Corinthians' eternal destiny was at stake, which is why Paul works so hard to argue why he should be embraced as a genuine apostle. His message should be believed, and the false teachers and their message should be rejected. So I invite you then to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It, it, just a quick overview of the letter as we're kind of plopping down two-thirds of the way through. Chapters 1 through 7, Paul's defending his apostolic ministry, probably mainly in mind towards those people who had repented. And then in chapters 8 and 9, there's a bit of a shift. In those chapters, Paul applies the gospel to the repentant by calling them to complete the giving project, to complete the collection that they had started for the Jewish Christians in need. And then chapters 10 through 13, the last section of the book, Paul resumes the defense of his ministry, particularly for the minority who persist in their rejection. He, he's kind of looking forward to the prospect of visiting them. And he kind of heightens and intensifies his defense, specifically with that minority group still in mind. Regarding these last four chapters, one commentator said that the, amb- the ambassador of reconciliation now becomes the warrior against rebellion. So as we consider Paul's defense of himself and his ministry in this chapter, there's three main points for us to grasp. Three main points for us to grasp. First, we must trust the power of the gospel. It's verses 1 through 6. We must value God-given authority, verses 7 through 11. And we must boast in the Lord, verses 12 through 18. So first, we must trust in the power of the gospel. Follow along as I read verses 1 through 6. I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I who am humble, but when face to face with you, but bold towards you when I'm away. I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness, which such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take captive every thought in obedience to Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete." So Paul here we see was being accused of being humble or timid in person when he was away from them writing, but bold when he was writing from afar. They kind of painted Paul like the dog who's all bark and no bite. 
Or, or maybe like the Wizard of Oz who frightened people when he hid behind the curtain, pulling levers and projecting a menacing image on a large screen, but then when met face-to-face was really just a scaredy cat. Paul's trying to make the point here that he's the exact same guy whether he's away from them or present with them. And he warns them that unless they stop putting up with the false teachers who are leading them away from the truth, they'll find out for themselves that he's the exact same guy. It's like Christ who boldly confronted the Pharisees and chief priests when they challenged his authority in the temple. Paul is prepared to come to Corinth with his guns ablazing. But he first begs the Corinthians not to force a showdown. He entreats, he appeals, and he warns them by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. And in this identification with Christ, Paul destroys the accusation that his own meekness and gentleness are signs of weakness or lack of power or authority, as the Corinthians thought. The meekness and gentleness that Paul appeals to here and identifies with isn't seen so much in a particular demeanor or tone of voice. Rather, it's evident in his patient restraint from pronouncing judgment. Like Christ, who's patient, Paul is giving the Corinthians one last chance to repent. In the words of one commentator, far from timidity, his meekness is slowness to anger. And far from lack of conviction, his gentleness is forbearance. The accusation at the end of verse 2 that Paul walks according to the flesh likely refers to their opinion that he behaved according to human standards. And Paul says, yes, yes, Corinthians, we walk in the flesh, but we're not waging war according to the flesh. He's saying to them, I live as a human. I'm a frail clay vessel that is wasting away. But I don't wage war according to human standards. My method of warfare, totally unconventional. So to wage war according to the flesh is to rely on flimsy human resources that lack any divine power. But Paul's arsenal is very different. His weapons are supernatural and possess the power of God himself. Paul described this well in 1 Corinthians 2. 1 through 5, where he wrote, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and a power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. In the flesh, Paul may walk weakly, but he fights strongly because his weapons are supernatural. His power is God's power. Paul doesn't specifically name all the weapons he has in mind here. Certainly, we look at Ephesians 6, where he does list a series of weapons, and perhaps he had in mind the word of God, prayer, divine wisdom, and holy conduct. But I think that the primary weapon here that Paul has in mind is nothing other than the gospel itself. The gospel that's epitomized in the word of the cross and in the knowledge of God. 
And I think Paul makes this point and brings this out earlier in this letter. In chapter 2, verses 4 through 6, he says, We've announced, dis- renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning human standards, human weapons. We refuse to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That is the divine weapon. That message is supernatural. Paul states here in our text that this message of Jesus Christ has divine power to destroy strongholds. That's kind of the first effect or the first thing here that it does. Every fortified city in the ancient world had strongholds that were really, really, really hard to conquer. Just like the central arguments that fortified his opponent's message. Paul's gospel has divine power to knock down the obstacles of pride that keep people from knowing God. It has the power to demolish the stronghold of human reasoning and destroy the false arguments that seem to be so incredibly invincible. As Carson points out, Paul's language of destruction here is not merely about winning debates or winning arguments. He means something far more. His weapons destroy the way people think, demolish their sinful thought patterns, their mental structures by which they live their lives in rebellion against God. Paul's opponents had weapons, but they were feeble. Their high-level attraction was able to draw a crowd. It was able to impress a lot of people, but they couldn't change the person within. Only the gospel can do that. When people come to believe, anybody, anywhere, at any time, it is only because the gospel has cut down the high towers in their souls that were once set against the knowledge of God. And after the gospel destroys the mental stronghold, we see here that it takes captive every thought to the obedience of Christ. This verse is often used in reference to our individual thought life as a Christian. How we need to control our sinful thoughts by by capturing them and conforming them to Christ. And that is absolutely something that we all must do. I mean, the battlefield of our minds is so incredibly important. But Paul's point here is not simply that Christ helps people to think right thoughts. His point, as Carson states, is that their mental structures, plans, and schemes are taken over and transformed as they come to a new allegiance. The gospel conquers strongholds, takes captive thoughts, and in verse 6, disobedience is punished. It punishes disobedience. Paul is asking the Corinthians here to, all throughout this letter, but specifically focusing here, he's asking them to to disassociate themselves from his opponents 
and from their fleshly version of Christianity. And as Paul's kind of already said, when he comes, when he shows up, he will be bold. He will be ready. He's not going to shirk from his responsibility. But far better if he did not have to do that because the church engaged in discipline and dealt with the unrepentant before he gets there. That's what he wants. That's what he's actually here, we would think, is expecting them to do. Rich mentioned last Sunday night, as he gave an excellent talk on sexuality and looking forward to hearing more tonight. But last night, Rich mentioned that the most dangerous thing in the universe is a bad idea. And the ideas contrary to the truth revealed in God's word that are found in false religions and philosophies are indeed bad ideas and therefore extremely dangerous. In Dan's recent sermons, we've been blessed to hear from Romans 1 through 3. We've considered a couple examples of these false ideas. One of them is that man is inherently good and therefore can earn God's favor through good works. These ideas are contrary to what God has revealed and therefore are so dangerous, not only because they lead people to hell, but because they're ideological forts in which people attempt to defend themselves in their rebellion against God. These ideological strongholds, these walls that we put up in our pride, I mean, they could be things like intellectual doubt or cynicism. But they can also be less sophisticated things, like a love of money or pleasure, the innocent desire to serve yourself and just live life however you want. If you're here this morning and are finding ultimate satisfaction and fulfillment in anything other than God, then you're living as if God isn't really God, and the Bible presents that as opposition to him. It may not feel like you're really opposing God actively, but the reality is that you are. You are because you're living for your own purposes, not his. You see, God made us in his image for the purpose of glorifying him. But as we've seen very clearly in the recent weeks from Romans 3, we've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. But there's good news. In the gospel, we see right ideas. We see true ideas from God that are powerful enough to destroy all of the obstacles of pride that cause us to live in opposition to him. In Jesus, God became a man. He lived a sinless life and died the death we deserved. Jesus took the just payment for our treacherous and rebellious opposition to God. God was satisfied with his sacrificial death in our place. And three days later, he raised Jesus from the dead as as confirmation that it was sufficient for a restored relationship and full and complete forgiveness. Have you been taken captive by this glorious and powerful message of the gospel? If not, I urge you this morning to repent of your sinful thoughts that are in opposition to God. Trust in his sacrifice on the cross 
for your sin and experience the freedom and joy that comes from living for Christ rather than for yourself. And as Christians, these verses are a reminder that we're in a war, right? I mean, Paul, weak, little, timid Paul is using war imagery. It's an indication to us of how serious the Christian life is and the fact that we're in a war. A war is not against people who are opposed to God, but it's against their false ideas. And we're instructed here, I think, we're given a glimpse on how to fight. Not by attacking those who believe the lies. Not by somehow becoming an expert apologist, figuring out the answers to every single wrong idea and all the false religions and philosophies so we can somehow offer the perfect explanation response as if that was even possible. We just got to push the big red button. What we must do is unleash the only weapon powerful enough to destroy the fortress of pride that keeps people from a true knowledge of God. I think it's very natural. It's very natural for us to be reluctant to share the gospel because of fear of what people might think or how they might respond. And oftentimes, I even doubt that it will make any difference. So why even bother saying anything? That thought crossed my mind on Monday night as I was sitting at the playground in the Burnsville Mall, surrounded by a variety of immigrants, all of whom appeared to be Muslim. In our failures and struggles with evangelism, we really need to be encouraged by what Paul's saying here. Our hope lies not in our presentation of the gospel, but in the gospel itself, in the God who uses that message to change people's lives. I mean, if we really believe that, if we really believe that we have in our arsenal a weapon that is divinely powerful, enough to destroy the thoughts opposed to God, even in the Islamic faith, our evangelism would be radically changed. Now, of course, we don't know who will respond and who won't. We don't know God's timing in all things. But if we love God and if we love people, we will open our mouths and launch the most powerful weapon in the universe. And we'll do so with hope. With hope and expectancy that God will use the message of the gospel to destroy proud thoughts and transform both the mind and the hearts of those opposed to him. And as we think about evangelism, next quarter, one of our Bible classes will be on that topic. So there's a great opportunity to learn and grow together and the privilege and responsibility we have of sharing the gospel with others. So we see here first, we must trust in the power of the gospel. Second, we must value God-given authority. Value God-given authority. Following along, in verse, starting in verse 7. Look what is before your eyes. If anyone is confident that he is in Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if, our, even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, I will not be ashamed. I do not want to, to appear to be frightening you with my letters. For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his 
bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account, let such a person understand that when we, what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Some within the Corinthian church doubted that Paul was a spirit-empowered minister. And in verse 7, he points to the logical conclusion that if the Corinthians belong to Christ, then he must too, since he was the one who brought them to the gospel and introduced them to Christ. He was their spiritual father. Your existence as a church, Corinthians, is the primary evidence that I'm Christ's servant and that the spirit of Christ works powerfully through me. Boasting is a particularly significant theme throughout the remainder of this letter. In fact, chapters 10 through 13, that word occurs 22 times. Verse 8 indicates that Paul's opponents seem to think that he boasted too much of his authority. But I think it's important to note that any boasting that Paul did do was not in himself as a person, but in the authority of his new covenant ministry that he had been expounding and celebrating really starting in chapter 2 all the way up to this point. It was not the outworking of his pride, but the overflow of his love and calling as a minister of the new covenant. That's what his boasting was about. His authority, Paul states in verse 9, was given to him by God. Through a bright light that knocked him literally to the ground, God met Paul on the road to Damascus, as described in Acts chapter 9. And at that very same time, God gave him the authority for this task of proclaiming the gospel to the Gentiles and planting churches in cities like Corinth. Paul wanted them to know that his authority was given by God. But he also wanted them to see that the purpose of his authority was to build them up. Verse 9 repeats the sense in verse 1 that some of the Corinthians were frightened by what he wrote to them. Perhaps those words were not seen as an effort to build them up, but to tear them down, to destroy them. We also see here that Paul's detractors seem to believe that true Christian leaders should be bold. They should be tall, dark, and handsome. And they, for sure, ought to be really impressive speakers. Apparently, some saw saw Paul's bodily presence as weak, his speaking ability to be worthless, and therefore they not only failed to value his authority, they pretty much just completely dismissed it. Now, we live in a culture that bucks against any notion of authority, and it really teaches us to be suspicious of pretty much any authority especially when we see so many examples of people misusing or abusing their authority. But a wholesale rejection or even suspicion of authority is a really, really bad idea. Because there is a good and loving God who created us, and therefore He has total and complete authority over us. And God places people as authority in our lives because he's good, because he's loving and knows exactly what is best for us. So we really can't reject authority or even be suspicious of it without in some way rejecting or even doubting God. It's essential then that we value the authority that God has placed in our lives. 
So children, age six, on up to teens, perhaps 18 or 19. God has given you parents to be your authority. They're not perfect. They probably make a mistake or two every now and then. But you should value them. You should value them because they are a good gift from God. Wives, we see in God's created order and design that your husband is your head. We were encouraged on that point last Saturday, two Saturdays ago, in the marriage seminar. Your husband is a sinner. He has major flaws. But he's your God-given authority and you should value him because he's a good gift from God. For all of us who are church members here, Godly elders are one of the ways God protects and preserves his church as they teach and model to us God's truth. All of our elders, too, are major sinners with lots of flaws. But these men are good gifts to our church, and we should value and trust their God-given authority over us. I I don't think we should fail here to see at least an implied implication for those of us who are in authority, for all of us who may be in positions of leadership. How we exercise our authority is a really big deal because God has given it to us for the building up of those who are under our care. One has insightly observed that what is more important than the claim to possess authority is the manner in which it is exercised. And I think one of the reasons that the Bible has such strong words for those who abuse their authority is because in doing so, they tell a lie about God, who is the ultimate authority. And in the process of that, it is difficult for people to trust God, who is the good authority. So whether parents husbands, bosses or managers, or elders. All of us who are in authority must use it wisely. Authority rightly used is meant to give life, not to destroy. It's given to build up, not to tear down. We must first trust in the power of the gospel. We must value God-given authority. And third, we must boast in the Lord. Picking up at verse 12. Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. But we will not boast beyond limits, but will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. For we are not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. For we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel of Christ. We do not boast beyond limit in the labors of others. But our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you may be greatly enlarged. So that we may preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's area of influence. Let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. 
For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. See, the problem with Paul's opponents is not that they're boasting. Not even that they're boasting too much. The problem was that the standard they use in seeking to validate their claim to apostolic authority in the Corinthian church was themselves. They pointed to their own abilities, spiritual powers and experience. They pointed to all these factors that are totally irrelevant to the issue at hand. And their own personal references lack the commendation outside of themselves necessary to establish their authority over the Corinthians. And Paul says this reveals that these guys are, are, are ignorant. They're without understanding. It's pretty easy to look good when you set the standard so low and only compare yourself to other people who are like you. One pastor said that they were like a guy who could only see out of one eye and then brags about his vision because all of his friends are blind. The New Living Translation of verse 12, I think, captures Paul's sense of sarcasm pretty well. It says, oh, don't worry. We wouldn't dare say that we are as wonderful as these other men who tell you how important they are, but they are only comparing themselves with each other, using themselves as a standard of measurement. How ignorant. In verses 13 and 14, we see that the objective, the, that we see that the objective basis for Paul's apostolic authority in Corinth, and therefore the validity of his boast, is the simple fact that he founded the church. This is kind of echoing the point made in verse 7. The Corinthians received the Spirit through his ministry, not his opponents. Therefore, he was the one to whom God delegated apostolic authority. His boast is the result of his fulfilling God's commission. And since the founding of the church was God's work, then his boasting is boasting in the Lord. Paul shares in verses, in verses 15 and 16 his desire to take the gospel further west. And we know from Romans chapter 15 that specifically the places he had in mind were Rome and then Spain. But first, before he went beyond, he wanted the church in Corinth to solidify. He wanted their faith to grow so then that the boundaries of his work could be expanded. Paul concludes in verse 17 by saying that the one who boasts should boast in the Lord. And here in this verse, he's quoting from the prophet Jeremiah, who says in chapter 9, verses 23 and 24, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. The prophet's criticism of the wise, mighty, and rich is not that they are those things per se, but that they act as if their wisdom, strength, and wealth came from themselves. And they glory in these things and they esteem them to be even more valuable than God. So the issue is not whether or not one boasts. We all do. 
The issue is whether or not the object of our boast is God. Why does this matter? Why is this such a big deal? Look at verse 18. For it is not the one who commends himself who's approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. So to boast in the Lord, one has said, is the human counterpart to being commended by the Lord and hence approved by him. And as Carson has said so well, what matters most in God's universe is what God thinks of us. What matters most in God's universe is what God thinks of us. So boasting in the Lord is a really big deal. It's a big deal because if we boast in anything else, we do not have God's approval. So we've got to ask ourselves this morning, are we boasting in the Lord? Are you boasting in the Lord? The word boast can be translated to rejoice or exult in. Older translation used the word glory. Hence the song we often sing, I will glory in my Redeemer, or in the cross of Christ I glory. What defines you? What do you have to show for yourself? That is your boast. What do you value? What gives you a sense of worth, meaning, and significance? Is it your friends? Popularity? Your intellect? Good looks? Or personality? Is it your family? Perhaps your kids? Do you find your identity in your talents and abilities? All the wonderful things that you've accomplished in life? Is it in your hobbies or entertainment? Your health, your job, your house, or financial stability? There are all kinds of wonderful things that we enjoy and appreciate in this life. But none of them define us. None of them will last. And not a word of boasting in any of these things will ever be uttered in heaven. In Revelation, we see the scene. And the great multitudes from every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather around the throne. And they'll cry out with a loud voice, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That will be our boast for all eternity. And if we aren't boasting in the Lord in this life, we have no reason to think that we're going to be doing so in the next. Because God commends, He approves and accepts only those whose boast is in Him. It should be clear to us, I think, here that there's really only one opinion that matters in life. God's opinion of us is the only one that matters. Do you ever fall into the trap of comparing yourself with other people? Our world has a performance-based value system that tempts us to measure ourselves based on how we compare to others. And frankly, social media only pours gasoline on this fire. 
What kind of job we have. What kind of car we drive. What kind of hosts we were. How big our church is. Whether or not we're married. Who we're married to. How good the sermon is. How many friends we have on Facebook. Or how many likes or shares we get. How smart we are. How beautiful or handsome we are. All compared to someone else. That might go well for a while. There may be even times when you feel pretty good about yourself. But it's an awful, awful way to live. Because sooner or later you'll find someone who's better than you. And you'll be riding an emotional roller coaster feeling really, really good one day and awful the next. Perhaps you even experienced how exhausting this life of constant comparison can be. What's the solution? How do we get off the roller coaster? It's by coming to know God's grace and realizing that our value and identity is not rooted in our performance, but in Christ. There's a great story in Luke chapter 10 where Jesus sends out 72 disciples. He sends them out two by two, and they go out, they cast out demons, they, they heal people. They come back, and they are just jazzed. I mean, they are pumped, and they tell Jesus all the amazing things that they did. Jesus verifies their account. He says, yeah, guys, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Great, that was wonderful. But then in verse 20, he tells them, Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus is saying that your glory, guys, what what you're boasting in and what your glory is, it's not in all these really cool things that you're doing. It's that you're a child who belongs to me. That is the acceptance that matters. That is your boast. The most important thing about you isn't how you compare to another person. Those opinions are fleeting. They won't matter forever. The most important thing is that you belong to God. The fact that God, the creator of the universe, would be mindful of us and accept us into his family in spite of our rebellion against him, that is worth boasting about. That God would accept us as forgiven sinners, enemies who he has made a friend, that is the commendation that matters. Nothing matters more in life or death than that we belong to Jesus. And that is what we must boast about. I feel studying this chapter and thinking through how to explain it and go through it, sort of like perhaps all of us, in a sense, as you've joined in with me, perhaps feel sort of like a person listening to an intense conversation someone else is having on the phone with somebody they've had a long and complicated and rocky relationship trying to make sense of what they're saying while only hearing the one side. Perhaps that's what I feel at least a little bit like walking through this chapter. 
We sought to discern God's word for us through Paul's defense of his ministry to the Corinthians. I'm sure we probably missed some things and have not accurately interpreted everything that he said to them. But in this one-way conversation, we have seen clearly three things. We've seen that we must trust in the power of the gospel. We must value God-given authority. And we must boast only in the Lord. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for the power of the gospel. We thank you for giving it to us in your grace and mercy. And Father, we thank you for the way in which your gospel has transformed lives sitting in this room. This gathering this morning is evidence that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Father, I pray for any here who are still holding up walls of pride opposed to you. And we just would ask that you would, in your grace, allow the gospel to break them down. And may those of us who know you, Father, trust in this power. May we trust in the gospel and Take opportunities, look for opportunities to speak it and to share it with others. Father, we acknowledge that you have made us, you own us, you are our authority. May we value and trust the authority you've given in our lives. And may all of us, in whatever position of leadership authority we may be in, may we truly love and lead well, seeking only to use our authority to build up and not to tear down. And Father, as the gospel has affected our hearts and as you've given us life, help us to boast about it. Lord, help every aspect of our life to be seen through the lens of who you are and what you've done for us in Christ. May we find in Christ our greatest treasure, our greatest prize. And may we not allow anything of this world, any idol to somehow become what defines us, and what we find our value in. Please, Lord, allow these words and this letter penned many, many, many years ago to people who are so distant from us. Father, allow these words to affect our heart for your glory. It's in Christ we pray these things. Amen.